Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast sponsored by the Academic and Special Library section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Ferris. So remember how I promised you a live audience recording? Uh, Well, you'll have to hold off a little bit longer for that because the live recording extravaganza didn't quite work out. Uh, The recording bit did, just not the the audience bit. Um, So you live and learn. We'll have to park that idea um, for for now. Uh, What I do have for you, though, is an interview with a great um, champion of the Irish library scene. At the start of Library Ireland Week, I sat down for a chat with Helen Fallon. Helen is the deputy librarian at Maynooth University, and she's also very well known for her academic writing blog and training courses where many a librarian have cut their academic writing teeth. Um, We talked about Helen's impressive library career and her advice for getting started with academic writing. So turn it up really nice and loud. Uh, It's nearly as good as the live experience. with Helen Fallon. Helen, thank you so much for finally uh, agreeing. You've, you've been on my list of interviewees for Librarians Allowed for, for quite a while, but uh, it's very nice that it happens this week uh, during Library Ireland Week. Uh, so happy Library Ireland Week. Oh, thank and, you. And thank you so much for joining me on Librarians Allowed. Um, so Library Ireland Week, it's all about librarians kind of transforming lives uh, this year, but I like the idea as well that not only do librarians transform lives, but you know, as librarians, by being librarians, we've had our lives transformed by the decision we made to become uh, library information professionals. So, I'd just like you to kind of maybe give me some background on the first steps that got you into the library world. Well, I was a student here in what was then Saint Patrick's College, Maynooth. And it, that was from 77 to 80. And in my mm. second year, I was broke. I was always broke, really. But in my second <laughs> the year... The typical student experience. Yeah. <laughs> it was very acute. And somebody mentioned to me that the library employed people to shelve books. So I went over to the library. There was just one library at that time. It's where the Russell Library now is. And I inquired about this, and I was offered a job. Now, up until then, I had actually... I was using the library, but any time I went in, I never went to the shelves for a book. Instead, I went to the trolleys because I thought these mm. nice librarians were leaving out the books we needed every morning for us. <sighs> now, in actual fact, of course, these were the returns and they were put on mm. the shelves to be shelved. But such was my ignorance of the library, if you like, that that's what I thought. But actually, as a model, it worked quite well for me. I thought it was a bit like a bookshop or something, yeah. the most popular text site. Well, the, yeah, the most popular things mm. are the things that are going to be on the, the trolleys. It worked. And so I did that 12 hours a week for two years. Now, I had come to Maynooth with the idea that I'd probably be a teacher or maybe a journalist or something like that. But by the time I was graduating,
graduating, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I heard when I was working in the library that there was a one-year course you could do in librarianship in UCD, but you needed a year's work experience. So I inquired about the year in the library and I got that. So I then went on to UCD to do a master's. No, it wasn't a master's at that time. It was a postgraduate diploma in mm. librarianship. And again, I was pretty broke. So I worked at night time, two nights a week in the engineering library. That was in Merrion Square, where the government buildings now are. Oh, yeah. So that's what actually, it was really by default. And I always had this idea that in the future I might do something else like teaching or be a journalist. But in actual fact, librarianship allowed me to do all those things. Yeah. Um, and that was good. And it also allowed me to travel. When I was leaving library school, or um, it was a very depressed time in Ireland. It was 1982, I think, that I graduated in. Mm. And an American company was recruiting via the library school. They were looking for librarians to go to Saudi Arabia. So myself and a few other people of that year actually went to different libraries. And it was an opportunity, as I saw it, uh, to earn some money to pay back a loan I had. And also to get the money for a deposit for a house and a car and things like that and to do a bit of travelling. Mm. So that was interesting and that was a medical library or health sciences they called it. And at that So you went straight from library your library, school. library school yeah, to, to Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Wow. So yeah, and it was quite different but the library itself was very good. They had a lot of money for a start off. But also they were doing things like quality assurance and quality procedures a long, long time before yeah. quality reviews came into That's the... That's considerably before we would have thought of doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, and they were also doing what became known as roving later in Irish libraries. And again, that was about 10 years ago that roving took off in universities. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was working with an American librarian and he said to me, you know, go around the shelves and ask people, are they okay? Can you help them and all that? And I thought, oh my God, you know, this is so yeah. horrible, really. But I got over myself and um, did you ever envision that was something you would have to be doing as a librarian when I, I, I didn't really think about it I mean it made sense when I did it in uh, in Saudi or right uh, but then when I returned to Ireland that was it was quite a different library landscape. was that a little bit of a reverse culture shock then returning to Ireland to initially what the Irish libraries were like in comparison initially it was because I got a job in Bordenamona which was in Newbridge and that was a small mm. scientific library and really well it was good in that it was the beginning of library automation as it was called then and my job was to input records into a database um, which was good learning for me because it's the first time really I used a computer but a small scientific library didn't suit me and I was on contract there so I applied for a job and was successful in DCU. Mm. DCU was then National Institute for Higher Education in Dublin and I went there as the business librarian and that was somewhere that I had a bit of a love affair with um, mm. because it was so energetic and it was so young as an institution. Yeah, like I'm just thinking of it at that time it was, DC was very young yeah. and they were very innovative in yeah. terms of the, the way that they developed. Totally, it. yes. They have very strong links with the business community yes. and they're probably one of the first yeah. institutions I remember that's developing those kind of strong um, industrial links. Absolutely, links. yeah. And they were really, you know, ahead in many areas. Also, I worked with particularly wonderful people there, Carmel O'Sullivan, who's in mm. UCD now, Maeve Hoolan, who sadly is no longer with us, mm. and Anne Rafter, uh, who 
they would be Anna's retired for a very long time but they were great people to work with and there was this great strong bond and that helped me a lot to establish my own sense of identity mm -hmm. and I loved being a business librarian but after about three years I felt I did want a bit of a change and um, I'd always been interested in working in Africa so I visited the Sudan and the Gambia when I had friends working there. So I applied to an organisation called Voluntary Services Overseas mm -hmm. and went to Sierra Leone for two years. And what appealed to me about the job in Sierra Leone was that it was teaching librarianship, so I could actually mm. do something I really wanted to do. So you're really shaping the future yeah, of librarianship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I spent two years there, and the country was on the brink of war, and it was an interesting experience. Um, I don't say anymore that Sierra Leone was a poor country. It was actually a country very rich in natural resources, such as diamonds, but it had been impoverished by international business and yeah. by... Uh, business interests that weren't in the interest of the Sierra Leonean people. And when I went there, there were four Leones to the pound. We were still in pounds. And when I was leaving, there were 400 Leones to the pound. So inflation was just um, crazy. Salaries were six months in arrears at the university and people were just struggling to survive. And war came. Uh, in fact, when I was... Um, the last summer when I was packing up to leave, there was a curfew in Freetown, but people didn't, you know, there was fighting in the mm. western part of the, eastern part of the country, but people didn't expect it to come to Freetown, but sadly it did all result in a civil And what sort of an war. impact did that really volatile political climate have on the people who were training, that you were training, that were going into librarianship? Where did they see their role as future librarians in the face of this kind of political unrest? I think that, like me, most people didn't actually expect this to um, develop the way it did. Mm. And people really wanted to work in traditional libraries. And there were certain libraries that everybody wanted to work in because you were guaranteed a salary. That would be the British Council Library, the American Embassy, the UN. Basically, Working for a non-governmental organisation mm. was very attractive um, for people uh, doing library studies at that time. But many of them subsequently, um, well, many stayed in libraries in Sierra Leone. Some I don't know what became of, and some left the country when the war was on. Mm. And how did that change your view then when you came back to, to Ireland, having been through such a... Kind of um, I, I guess it was a very, it was a wonderful experience for me in many ways. It was quite a tough physical experience, you mm. know. You had to walk everywhere, for example. Public transport was non-existent. And um, just survival in those countries is quite challenging. You know, the day-to-day -day ruling, uh, for example, there'd be scarcities of virtually everything. Some days there might not be sugar in the shop or bread or mm. whatever. So scarcities are were a way of life but it make it does make you more resilient and yeah. um, you learn how to survive and also there was a bit a network of VSOs we weren't all in the same place VSO tends to spread people out as an or it wants you to become integrated if you like into the community you're in so I was in a village near the university. It was a wonderful opportunity too to meet villagers and some of the experiences I had, like they would have ceremonies where there would be devils dancing through the village, mm. people in straw costumes, etc. And I kind of felt, wow, like 
I'm never going to live somewhere like this again. So yeah, so just was, that rich kind of cultural it was, experience. It was very rich, yeah. yes. And I would say I was very, well, I was young, younger than I am now. Obviously, mm. this is a long time ago, from 89 to 91. So I enjoyed, the hardship of it didn't really get me down then. Um, when I returned later to do some, what are called specialist overseas service, um, assignments in Sierra Leone in different libraries. Mm. I kind of found being there for a month a bit of a challenge um, and I wondered how did I live here for two yeah. years but you know. Is that just the kind of the, the temporary nature of that? Yeah, like, knowing that so, you're only yes. going to be there for a yeah, short period yeah. of time. Sometimes Whereas, it's easier to be immersed in something than it is to just dip into it. This is true yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah in terms of your resilience when you came back to, to work in Ireland then did that give you a different perspective in terms of you know the the sort of things that we would see as maybe a shortage here and oh, the reality of what that would be Absolutely and it, it gave me a good sense of how to engage with Africa into the future. I went back to Dublin City University, as it had become, but like I've since had quite a number of links with Africa and we've supplied books to African universities. But I do know from my experience, like when I was at the University of Sierra Leone, there were basements full of books uh, that very good people in libraries in the UK mostly had donated mm. and there was nobody there to catalogue them. So I'm now much more aware that if you're sending things that African people are very polite, they won't say, no, we don't want yeah. this. Um, but you have to really ascertain how are things on the ground. Mm. You know, will these books be catalogued? Will they um, make a difference? Are these subjects relevant? So recently we had a gentleman who actually called into the library. He's the vice chancellor mm. of a university in Rwanda. And he was here at a conference. So as it happened, we were closing a campus in Kilkenny and we allowed him to select what books he wanted from the collection. So he was delighted to do that and then we paid for the shipment of the books to Rwanda. So that was good. So I would be aware of that, not to just dive in and say, let's sort out these problems, you know. Yeah. It all has to be relevant. So that was um, good for me. And yes, it would help uh, develop a resilience all right. But I arrived back to... Dublin City University had a very exciting time, I think. 1991 was mm. the beginning of, we'd moved away from doing online mediated searches. We were buying CD-ROMs, so basically you had the whole database there. People were doing their own set, mm. uh, searching. So we were doing training on how to search databases. Suddenly I could be involved in teaching people as well yeah. in so Ireland. teaching became a very solid part of Much the library. Much more than it had been. Then Alan MacDougall arrived in Dublin City University and he had come from the UK and was very outward looking. And um, I think it's no coincidence that people who worked with him tended to go on to um, like Caroline Brazier became the director of the British Library mm. and Jarvis who's now Anne, uh, was Anne-Marie uh, she's at Princeton now as the librarian yeah. she was at Cambridge because I think he had this outward looking approach mm. he suddenly yeah. uh, suddenly we were been told go to conferences he was mm. the person who encouraged me to write my first or give my first conference paper and that was down in Waterford for the Library Association of Ireland he mm. encouraged me to write um, I was trying to write about Sierra Leone at that time and Alan's wife had grown up in Ghana so she was also very interested in all that so he was somebody that I think was shaped DCU a lot and shaped my ideas of what you could actually do yeah. um, 
being a librarian. Mm, and sounds like I, I'm just I'm drawn to think of that sense of leaders being, you know, what do they say about good leaders lead? Leaders are leaders of, of leaders, you know, that, that they are outward looking and they build up yes. others. And yeah, so it sounds yeah. like he had a, a philosophy that empowered other people. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah, encouraging people. So, for example, I decided I wanted to do some type of postgraduate study at that point. Mm-hmm. So, from 1994 to 96, I did a master's in women's studies at um, University College Dublin, mm-hmm. and I did that in the evenings. Uh, so, it was quite demanding, but the DCU paid half my fees, which was very good, and that was again Alan's thinking. You know, this is a good way yeah, to go it as, as an investment. Like, yeah, and ninety six. Then I graduated, and I'd done my thesis on gender and the internet, which mm. was really quite topical. So that was published by UCD as a book, and um, that too got me into the idea of writing more. Yeah. Um, and I was also doing some creative writing. So that, that was time. when you did your, your work on women on the web? That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting that that whole idea was yeah. obviously very topical then because there weren't, there were very yeah. few women kind of certainly leading, leading out in tech industry, but it's absolutely it's, it's yeah. very much come back around again yeah. if you look at you know, the um, discussions around Wikipedia and the, yeah. the number of women who are active in editing on Wikipedia yeah. and the number of people who have uh, profiles on Wikipedia and the, the need to encourage more women to actively take part in, in editing and to take their part in developing yeah. the web. It's great now, mm. yeah, absolutely, and like that was a great opportunity. And then after I'd graduated in 1996, um, I, the, a sub-librarian job came up um, in Dublin City University, so I was successful in that, and I was in that post for four years, and then I came to Maynooth as deputy librarian in 2000, and that's been a very interesting and rewarding time too. Yeah, so you really, you were very much encouraged and got a lot of I feel like development a lot from DCU. Uh, of encouragement and development, yeah, in my career, and I feel I would like to think that I do the same with people you know Mm. uh, in the sense that now I'm in a position of authority and the whole area of professional development is very important to me so I was very fortunate to be on the what's now the Connell Training and Development Group Mm. it used to be ANLTC and the Library Association of Ireland CPD group so I can you know work at that level but equally here, I would encourage people to participate in Library Ireland Week and to write and publish and get out there and be seen and heard. And it, somebody, I can't even remember, it was probably Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. There's no point in talking about it should be this way or it should be that way. Mm. Like I remember before I started talking at conferences, when I was a very young librarian, I would go to conferences and there wasn't much on then. Uh, the main one was in Ulster, the Irish National University mm-hmm. Libraries Conference. And I would be sitting in the audience and I would be wondering, thinking to myself, it's all men, first of all, because there was yeah. just no thought of gender balance. But also, I often thought, I could give as good as that myself, that talk. Yeah. So then I had to say to myself, well, why don't you? You know, don't. Yeah. There's no That's like, if you get to that point where you're looking at someone going, do you know what? I think I could take a, a fair yeah. stab at that. I could yeah. probably do, you know, as good as that person. Then that's the time yeah. to 
go ahead and do it. Exactly, yeah, and just get out there and do it and get out of your comfort zone. I think mm. we all have to do that a bit. And I've certainly yeah. moved out of my comfort zone in, on many occasions. And, mm. um, so the move from DCU over to Minus, was that a, a step into... Or out of a comfort zone, a step into a new direction. I mean, Noose was de- was developing rapidly at, at that it time. It certainly as well. was a change, and it was quite a, uh, a culture change too. Mm. And that has been something that's interesting for me. And very recently, I was reading Peter Drucker says how culture eats strategy for breakfast. I so was just reading that recently <laughs> as well. For some hey, students, yeah. Other words, you know, you can yeah. plan and have strategies, etc. And I think it was a real learning experience for me because mm. the culture here was different. Staff had been here for much longer. Um, it was a much older institution. The values mm. were different. These are all wonderful things, really, you know, and it's just yeah. a different culture. It doesn't mean it's, um, you know... But it has such an impact on what uh, actually changes. You know, yes. The, the strategy yeah. can be there, but if you don't understand the, the unspoken of yes. the, the culture, then it just won't happen yeah you, know, you can try and impose but yeah it just doesn't happen unless I think you understand that's the culture true yeah, yeah. and yeah get, coming to grips with that Alan McDougal gave me good advice when um, I t- took up the job at that stage he was in King's College London but he was saying you know in the first while listen 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 I think through life and work and the world of life developing good listening skills and being able to really listen is actually very important and it's amazing how many people don't actually listen very well and I think as you get older maybe or I get older I realise that mm-hmm. that oftentimes people just want you to listen you don't actually have to um, solve things the other thing though that I've learned which I think is a good tip um, I did the UK Future Leaders course and one of the tips on it was about um, ask questions so when somebody's presenting you with a problem say what would a solution to this look like yeah. and try and get them to think about it, come it and come up with ideas because I do believe there is great wisdom in all of the staff collectively and um, I'm really interested in it, you know um, what's it called personality the types the profiling yeah. etc I've been fortunate psychometric uh, testing I think it's called mm-hmm. we had that on the future leaders and then recently in Maynooth we did a course called Unleashing Your Potential for All Staff and that was wonderful because all staff saw you know that people have different styles and different ways of being for example I can go into something not knowing I can cope with a great deal of uncertainty and a lot of change yeah but I can accept that other people aren't like that they like to know what are the stages in the process I can go with an idea that is half formed and it might work out slightly differently but that's okay Mm. but I do appreciate that other people want something different and that you need those people there to say wait a minute how will this work or what will happen if this doesn't work etc but also I'm a big believer in Beckett as well as you said fail fail better you know yeah me Um, too (laughs) (laughs) I I mean sometimes I wish I didn't always test things out by failing the first time but it's sometimes the only way to learn you learn more from what goes wrong yeah what goes very slightly in a different direction yeah. not even wrong but just veers off in a direction you don't expect yeah. it's interesting because it's not something that we 
embrace that well. I'm on the editorial board of a few journals and sometimes mm. I'm reading articles that people submit and they tell about some library change and it could be a big change really and there's something, you know, like oh, the staff loved it and, you know it was 100% successful and I feel, you know, this is unlikely to like, be true. Nothing's ever 100% Whereas, successful or your, your, yeah. your input method or your survey yeah. method is probably wrong. But why are we reluctant to actually share the things that don't work? I think it's more a mm. uh, condition, isn't it, in society yeah. that everything has to be very successful or something. I think or it's like part of a being metrics-based as well. If we're yeah. pushing for, you know, you said quite rightly that actually learning to listen mm. is much more valuable. But if, it, if you're in a culture that pushes for action... Yeah. I think quite often, particularly when people are in new roles or they're in they're in a an environment where there's a lot of restructuring, there's a an impetus for action. Whereas really, what you should be doing is allowing yourself to be open to settling and listening before any action happens. But maybe being pushed to action kind of impedes the listening. That's a very good point, and I also th- I really welcome the emphasis now on reflection and reflective practice. Mm. And uh, when I did the leadership course, one of the things we had to do was keep a reflective journal, and there were different models. When I picked had a certain number of questions, but one of the questions you asked yourself every day, and I really did do this every evening for at least a half an hour for the duration of the course, which is nine months maybe was one question when did you feel most alive today and I thought that was a good mm. question and I always felt most alive when I was interacting with people so I realised yeah it really suits me you know to mm. be in an organisation where there's a lot of interaction with people but that type of thing reflecting on what you've done and um, and again when I, I did an adult education certificate um, a few years ago and came across a woman called Carol Dweck, uh, who does work on resilience, but she talked about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Mm. When something doesn't work, not to say, oh, I'm no good at that, but instead think, well, I can develop my skills in this. So I like all of that um, resilience, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. I'm learning Irish at lunchtime. I, of course, did Irish many years ago at school, Mm. but it's helped me when it's become difficult, this is my second year, um, thinking about the idea of the growth mindset is actually helpful. You know? mm. Yeah, I think we're, uh, we're becoming more open to mm. the benefits of resilience now, um, mm. particularly in libraries. We've had, well, just as, as a nation, we've had you know, a few rough years. It's made people more aware of the fact that like, things are more likely to go wrong than yes. they are to go right. And even if they don't go completely wrong, they're mm. not going to go in the straight line you expect them to. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they go completely in a different direction. It doesn't mean it's a bad mm. outcome. It just means it's not what you anticipated. Yeah. And you have to learn how to kind of roll with that sometimes. Absolutely. And also maybe to see connections where they're not obvious. Mm. And I think that whole thing of connections is very important. Even, well... I can't say in the short time I've been in libraries because I've been in libraries for nearly <laughs> 40 years this year. But in the time I've been in libraries, that the idea of interaction with the outside organisation and other organisations has become so much bigger. Mm. All the time we have to work with, uh, you know, in the university departments, etc. But there can be a great richness in that too and bringing yeah. in the ideas. I know uh, 
writing an article with a lecturer from adult education, this is a good while ago, bringing together both of our experiences was actually really enriching and brought a different perspective to it. Mm. And sometimes you need someone who kind of tempers your, yeah. you know, kind of cuts down if you have rough edges or, or bits yes. that you're not good at. You need yeah. the two to make the whole. Absolutely. And like there's huge expertise in organisations. Mm. I often think we probably don't draw on it enough. Yeah, it makes it a bit easier to engage in a body of work as well yeah. if it's a collaborative process yes. where you're not bearing the brunt of everything yeah. on your own shoulders. Um, so you talked about yeah, looking outwards. Minuth has been, um, over the last few years anyway, um, been, been very keen on kind of building uh, outward relationships and collaborative projects. And Absolutely, and yeah. And, and it's very much the way things are going too. And like, yes, I wouldn't think we are uh, very strong on it. Um, IRL is the Irish Research Electronic mm. Library is a huge one but I can see how into the future that will be a trend, there will be a lot more collaboration and um, not just nationally but internationally we brought an exhibition to Quinnipiac um, a few years mm-hmm. ago that's in Connecticut um, a university in Connecticut and I can see in the future too yeah, that our collections might travel more especially unique and distinctive ones worldwide and you know developments like that international cooperation and of course mm-hmm. there's the Dublin Erasmus week now which um, Minuth is part of and that's a great European collaboration so yeah. I think it's going to be very much outward looking and collaborating yeah. so speaking of um, you know, collections and uh, artwork collaborations <coughs> you were involved with bringing the Ken Sarawiwa um, writings and the exhibition of the uh, Ken Sarawiwa experience here to, to Minutes. Do you want to talk about how yeah. you first became aware of the Ken Sarawiwa story and what your involvement was with that? Okay, I returned from Sierra Leone in 1991. In 1994, in Dublin and on the national media, there were a lot of protests because a man called Ken Sarawiwa, a Nigerian writer and activist, who had been protesting about the activity of Shell in his homeland in the Niger Delta was uh, imprisoned and with along with eight colleagues they were called the Agoni Nine he was from a place called Agoni that was been utterly devastated by the uh, activities of Shell um, he was on death row as were his colleagues and Internationally, there was a great outcry. For example, President Clinton rung the then Nigerian president. Um, I think um, John Major intervened, uh, mm. many people. Um, so I would have been very aware of that, and I would have been aware that he was executed with his colleagues. And you know, I felt this was a great tragedy, but obviously, mm. that. Uh, I had no connection with that for quite a long time. Then a student who was doing work, a Minute student on the Shell to Sea project or media coverage of Shell to Sea campaign Mm. came to the library and asked if the library would be interested in a collection of death row letters that Sarawiwa had written to an Irish nun sister Magella McCarran. So somehow this query came to me and I immediately knew who this was and knew the importance of it so we agreed we would take it. And from there on, it took on a bit of a life of its own because Sister Magella was very keen that it not be... She wanted it preserved. 
she'd kept it under her bed or in a box for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And as well as the letters and poems, there were artefacts, a cap that Sarawiwa had, a flag, um, a mossop movement for the survival of the Ogoni people, T-shirt. So she gave all this to us and, and recordings of various people. And we set about, first of all, preserving it. But we wanted to do more than that. We digitised it, went into the digital repository of Ar- mm. Ireland. Myself and two colleagues, uh, a lecturer in sociology and a lecturer in English, edited the le- letters. And I felt it was very important for me as a librarian to be involved in that and to have a very clear role of writing a chapter, etc., and to be recognised as an academic writer rather than helping lecturers to write a book and we published Silence Would Be Treason and Ken Sarawiwa's brother came from Nigeria to launch it. Alongside that we developed an audio archive with Kairos um, and again this kind of grew out of my friendship with a woman who worked in Kairos so I always think you really shouldn't underestimate the importance of having coffee with people and talking and networking and everything like that so I think that's huge and I think that um, it's important to be involved on the formal committees but also the informal communication is huge but basically Kairos wanted to make an archive an audio archive with us uh, of people connected with Sarah Weewa uh, so we did that and I learned an awful lot about recording. I actually did a module on the MA in media studies um, mm. in order to know how to make a documentary or how to do recordings and that was really interesting and in the end we had quite a lot of interviews. I, I, to be honest I can't remember how many now but um, it included Sarah Weewa's brother and his daughter and other people concerned with the issues, Sister Magella McCarran of course that he campaigned for. So that's been great. And then the University of Ibadan, where Sarawi was studied, asked us could they broadcast parts of it on their um, campus radio. So that mm. was great. And also it featured on um, um, News Talk, uh, did a feature on it. So that's something that's an open access. The book is also an open access, and that's really mm. important. We launched the second edition two weeks ago, yeah. but it's important that it's available to people uh, internationally who want to know more about Sarawiwa and the broader issues he campaigned for. And this time, when we launched the second edition of the book with a local school, we had a poetry competition. So we brought in a writer called Jessica Trainer, a poet, mm-hmm. and she ran workshops for transition year students that were here in the library and the students got to see the archive and they wrote poems and she was the judge and um, we announced the winners at the launch of the book and that got the local school, the transition year students learned about a person and also an issue and also a collection and we felt that was a great way to publicise the collection mm. and the exhibition that went to Quinnipiac was in fact about Sarawiwa so yeah we certainly uh, feel we have a very important role in keeping his life and legacy alive. Yeah. I think libraries are wonderful at acquiring and preserving archives. They may not mm. be as good just yet at um, making them available, but I should say that in Maynooth University, we had wonderful support. I had wonderful support. The library had wonderful support from the finan- chief financial officer because <coughs> we had to get advice from solicitors, etc., the university solicitors, yeah. before publishing and also we're currently we've finished negotiations on a film with an American um, 
filmmaker who is of Nigerian ethnicity and again that required the university to get a lot of legal advice on the contract so we couldn't have just gone out and done that. So yeah there's a lot of sensitivity is, obviously yeah. when you're dealing with someone's legacy and yeah. with people who are in the correspondence are still alive yes. so that's a whole new direction that you went in with you know even seeing the, the role of the librarian as you know documenting oral history and and kind of pr- legacy preservation was that we a challenge um, it was fascinating we probably have been doing it like documenting it but documenting yeah. it in a different way like for example think we've been doing it in a sort of a passive way rather uh, than actively or promoting. in a traditional way. Mm. I know here, before I joined the staff, in I think it was 1997, a book was published called Library Treasures about the collections in the library. And unfortunately, it's out of print. It was published by the Royal Irish Academy. But like, that was a good way to document um, some of the collections. But it would be good now if those we've started looking at putting those chapters into the institutional repository to make them available. Mm. And maybe if you're looking at library treasures now, you might actually do something different, like a film or whatever. You know, yeah. there's more media available to us, and I guess we have to look at different ways mm. to as to how we can. Um, publicize our collections and then we have to be strategic in our decisions as well because we can't do everything mm. you know it's like identify a couple of key collections here we have Pierce Hutchinson's archive Teresa Devi an Irish playwright her archive mm. and Ken Sarawee was three very major ones so we've been putting some focus on those um, the Pierce Hutchinson archive is currently travelling through Spain he had a lot of connections with Spain he lived there for a good while Teresa Devi will be going to um, the US next year so you can only do so much obviously and it's kind of making those type of decisions is important too and being able to make them rather than trying to do everything yeah but I think there's a, you know, an important point there to see the power of our responsibility yeah. for these collections mm. and for the ma- maintenance of a legacy yes you know, absolutely yeah. that there is a, you know there's a very powerful role for librarians yeah. there that maybe we haven't always recognized you know the the strength of before that absolutely. as custodian of a, of a collection like that you are preserving someone's memory their legacy and there's a certain power in being able to amplify that absolutely we're very powerful people really sometimes we (laughs) don't know that or maybe we don't you know we don't always acknowledge it maybe yeah Yeah. Um, or probably more the outside world doesn't always acknowledge it but you know it relies on us to to prompt them to do that Um, so yeah that sounds like that was a very that rewarding was a really experience. That continues to be a very rewarding yeah. experience, and we tend we have every year a Ken Sarawiva seminar here in November, and Sister Magella has been coming back to Manute every year to view the archive and also to participate in that. Mm. And she's um, seventy nine years of age, and every year she says this is my last one, <laughs> but then the next year she's fit to come back, which is totally wonderful. Yeah, you know? she's still going um, strong. So that has been really good. Another thing which I enjoyed very much and was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do was editing a themed issue of uh, a well, a journal which later became a Routledge book, the librarian as communicator, mm. and that was great opportunity to interact with librarians internationally and also to learn a lot really because all the chapters were so interesting and um, 
get such insights and really made me feel reading them actually we're doing very well in Ireland you know, yeah, we are. Sometimes we need to give ourselves a pat on the back. We're, we're kind of pun- punching above our weight we in are, a lot of areas, yeah. and yeah. we do need to recognise that, um, particularly in a fairly short space mm. of time. Like the, even the, the concept of librarian as communicator or the need for communication and marketing skills yes. in libraries is quite new. I'd say probably about 10 years or so ago. Yeah, you would have mentioned marketing, and yeah. people saw it as kind of a dirty word. Yes. Like, oh no, that's those are the dark arts. We don't practice those. Um, you know, we had our own ways of doing things, but yes. we didn't really borrow from the world of communications yeah. in the way that we do now, and in the way that we kind of have developed a crossover between mm. traditional library activities and you know media and communication mm. skills. Well, at the moment, I think social media is something which we absolutely like we need to embrace mm. very significantly like Twitter is the greatest current awareness service that I am aware of Yeah, I think it's utterly wonderful for professional communication and for getting your messages out there and, mm. and just the speed of it as well yeah. like the, the sense of being able to keep on top of things in, mm. in real time I was having this conversation with a colleague recently yeah. about someone who isn't uh, on Twitter and you know I was on my high horse yes. <laughs> as usual about what the benefits of it are and I said well just for being able to be aware of yeah. what's happening in the profession yeah. there are things that I would just have never known about yeah. were not for Twitter and were not for particular people who amplify and mm-hmm. spread mm-hmm. you know good mm-hmm. information and it mm-hmm. is all about kind of trusted networks mm-hmm. you know I trust this person because yes. they are you know they're verified yeah. and I know that the the, yeah. the information they pass on is is high quality and it's yeah. not kind of yeah. spurious and you know and like last week after our Kinsler Rewa seminar and book launch, we were able to send the recording or a link to it out on Twitter and to people in Agoni. Uh, you know, we have, you can get a message out globally very quickly on Twitter. I really think librarians, if they're not already embracing it, really should. Yeah, yeah. Library Ireland Week is a good time to... Yeah. to get involved with it, just follow Absolutely. that hashtag, like, yeah. yeah. just looking at what's happening all across the, the, the country. Um, but another area that you've been, been very strong in promoting is librarians as publishers acad- and academic publishing for librarians. What got you started and what kind of made you start moving in the direction of actively publishing, um, but then also encouraging staff to publish on their work? Well, as I mentioned, I think the experience of being in Sierra Leone was an encouragement because I felt when I came back I had something interesting to say. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think I was wrong in the sense it was, certainly was interesting. But every day there's interesting things you're involved in. You don't have to go as far as Sierra Leone. I think that was a, you know, my idea that it had to be a little bit exotic. Um, well, there was definitely an audience for the, well, that's the true, people yes. would not have known what the yeah. experience of working yeah. in Sierra Leone yeah. would have been like. So. Uh, so I wrote about that and got great encouragement and then I started to write about other things and then it was actually when I came to Manute, I got a lot of encouragement from Alan MacDougall but I think there was always this perception that you know Helen is somebody who likes to write which is, and I also did creative writing as well mm-hmm. um, but it didn't really it wasn't part of what DCU Library did. Anybody who was writing, Alan MacDougall wrote a lot as well, they did it in their own time and it yeah. wasn't at all, um, you know, Alan and I had good conversations about writing, but it was during lunch break or whatever. 
But um, then I was here in Maynooth and Rowena Murray, who is at, well, at Scottish University, she used to be at Strathclyde at that time, and she's written a number of books like how to get published in journals, how to survive your viva, etc. Yeah. She came to Manu to give a one day workshop. And I went to the workshop, but I thought this is really quite easy. I could really almost do this myself. And I was talking to Carmela Sullivan from UCD and she said, well, why don't you do it for ANLTC as it was then? So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And that was my first workshop. And that went quite well. And basically, I've continued doing it since then. And at a particular point, I reckoned, look, Manus can do this free of charge because I'm paid the day I do it, Mm. etc. And it's a good contribution to the profession. So once a year in June, there's a free workshop on writing for academic publishing. And as an offshoot of the first one, quite a way back, I decided to develop a blog. Blogging was relatively new at the time, mm-hmm. and I wrongly thought this blog would be very useful for us to share um, our thoughts about writing, etc. Nobody in the group, uh, and I understand totally why, wanted to put their thoughts about writing or their writing out there yeah. in an unfinished state. So instead, I decided to develop a different way. I put up calls for papers and book chapters etc and I asked people to write blog posts down the years like I remember Mary Delaney writing one about um, mm. doing a doctoral thesis and that got an awful lot of hits so it did it obviously um, it was called why should librarians do doctorates and it obviously struck a note with a lot of people and some other ones as well were very high um, number of hits and um I also realised too that I could invite people from Sierra Leone, somebody I'd known who was now the librarian in the university where I worked to write a blog post about what's it like working as a librarian and trying to develop academic writing in a, you know, a country where mostly you can't pay, afford to pay for a journal yet alone writing one, you know, mm. how do you develop those skills? And um, so the academic librarian blog kept going like that and uh, post a presentation on it came second prize in the Connell um, conference last year which I was pleased about mm. um, and basically I've kept it going it hasn't been hugely arduous to do that and now quite a lot of people email me and say would you put this up or would you, you know, um, mention such and such an award and I do that because yeah. so. it's, it's very well known now yeah. anyone who has taken steps into um, publishing on their work would say that they would consult it as as a source and you become synonymous with the promotion of academic publishing for librarians and encouraging well thank you uh, Laura something which was very important to me actually in the blog and what really meant to take off was I did a short session here as in I was the learner and Jane Burns who is known in the Irish Library world mm-hmm. um, was the presenter and she said link it up with social media and every time I put up a blog post now I tweet that accounts for a lot of the success of it because people see the tweet and then the link um, short link to the actual post and that's an important thing. I think you'd have a blog mm. and that nobody would be aware of it if you didn't tweet as well. So that linked up um I owe it to Jane Burns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jane Burns just has a hand in everything. Oh she, she does <laughs> and um, again I think maybe it's because she's from a different culture being American that she's got mm. insights that you know you don't readily think of. 
Americans too sometimes, yeah. and I think Americans generally, this is a very broad generalisation, have a very can-do attitude, and I think we're getting better at it in Ireland. Yeah, we're um, getting there, slowly. Yeah, like give this a go, and if it doesn't work, you know, we'll try something else, it's not, you know, the end of the world. Yeah. So the blog has worked quite well, yeah, and... Um, it's a good introduction as well. I think sometimes when people are a little bit nervous about the idea of launching straight into submitting, you know, yeah. an article for mm. to go through go through the peer review process, mm. which is you know, lengthy mm. and there's a lot of work involved. Mm. Starting off with yes. blogging is a good step yeah. to get you know to hone your skills and get comfortable. Absolutely, and Lib Focus blog has been marvelous yeah. uh, for yes. that and to give people an outlet. Uh, and Larland too is excellent um, as a, um, uh, an outlet for Irish librarians because it only comes out twice a year and it's, yeah. uh, you know has so many articles and it serves the whole community. It means that for universities maybe something else is needed but Scannell Focus is back it was mm. not produced for about a year there but now they're going back to it and I yeah. think Scannell Focus is very important for getting out articles about our practice mm. and both Sanlardan and Scannell Focus because they're not extremely long articles yeah. and they're quite supportive of the process and it doesn't take yes. you know, six months yeah. or a year from submission yeah. to yeah. appearing in print they're a yeah. good stepping stone so if you begin with a blog then yeah. submit to yeah. and Laurelin or, or Scannell Focus and I wrote up my academic writing workshop as the academic writing toolkit and published in Scannell Focus some while ago but that's available via ePrints so um, in it I tried to point people in you know, how to maybe write an abstract, how to, you know, do the introduction, etc. I feel when I started writing, I wasted an awful lot of time because I had mm. no clear idea who I was writing for, what I was writing. It could have been a thesis, it could have been, a, you know, 2,000-word article or whatever. And now all of that preparation, preparatory work, I realise is so important. Yeah. Um, so that's the type of thing I really highlight to people. Mm. I think as well as that, we're only beginning to realise now that it's okay to say, to ask, well, how do I begin structuring yes. this? I think there's the, there's a lot of sort of mystification yeah. of the process of writing an article and maybe we're moving away from that now, yeah. I suppose, with, uh, as we embrace you know, open research more and begin to see things like open peer review, that'll certainly, yeah. there'll be a, a lot of those mystifications removed. Um, but it does take someone to sit down and say, well, look, here are step by step. This is how you actually go about writing an article, um, because nobody really wants to ask. Yes. Because it's almost like in admitting that you have to ask how to do it, then you yeah. you're kind of delegitimizing mm. your right to be doing it in the first place. So no one wants to put their hand up and go, actually, you know, mm. I don't know how to structure yeah. an article for submission, or I don't know where to start. Well, hopefully the workshops have helped with that. One thing I always say to people is what you leave out is as important as what you put in. Mm. Because articles frequently um, fail because they're too broad. They very rarely fail because they're too narrow. Sometimes they do. Mm. There's just not enough there. But um, kind of keep it narrow and focused. And um, at the moment, I'm um, trying to write poetry in my spare time. And I You don't have enough going on. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that... Yeah. 
uh, all the recommendations are, you know, about it's the unsaid that is important. I'm trying to get my head around this a bit as I read people like Seamus Heaney and that and what's unsaid here or what's implied. Mm. And there's great connections actually between creative writing and academic writing. So, you know, yes, yeah. it's all about a discipline, yeah. though, isn't it? And a, uh, and a practice. I Discipline is a word that I'm getting very uh, fond of as I get older. And I realise that life is an awful lot of it is about discipline. It's about making the decision to get up an hour earlier in the morning to, you know, sit at a PC and write or do... Although uh, I'm thinking of creative writing more there, it has become much more um, acceptable to write as part of your work and to present conference papers and prepare them and all that. And if you can do things, like you get to be quicker at writing, if you can present at a conference and then write up... uh, based on what you've presented and maybe questions you've got etc you can do things that don't take forever I would say that the very detailed sort of research um, that's not a case study it's much you know more than that you do need time for that and at the moment um, probably very few of us have it unless maybe Mm. we're lecturing in the library schools or whatever but um, you know, I don't know how we can develop that more and if into the future librarians could get sabbaticals and that opportunities would be to... The, the yeah. ideal, really, wouldn't it? But I think yeah. we have to just, yeah. as you said, we need to start with, with what we have. do the best we can. And maybe that's where the collaborations the time, come in yeah. if we don't have the time to do the very hardcore, yeah. you know, in-depth research ourselves, then that's where partnering with yeah. other you know, researchers, with yeah. other organisations help. We can do, you know, some aspect of the research and partner up with someone else who has the time and resources to do the other element of it. And also a lot of research good research has been done in UCD and Dublin Business School by the master's students um, looking at ways that that they could be mentored maybe to uh, or partnered um, to um, do publish these these articles uh, or uh, this research as articles in peer-reviewed journals sometimes I find that by the time somebody thinks about doing it after they've left uh, the program a lot of time has elapsed and that mm. that is a bit out of date that's one of the challenges I think when you leave uh, finish your masters you're probably so focused on getting a job etc yeah, and exhausted, exhausted and tired of it tired sometimes when you spend yeah. a long time with the subject the last thing you want to do yeah, you know, yeah. if you're working towards a big piece of work like yeah, a masters yeah. or a PhD yeah. you sometimes just want to yeah. turn your back on it and not that's see where it for a while. encouragement comes in I know when I yeah. finished my masters in women's studies Alva Smith was hugely enthusiastic to publish it mm. now I was very naive at the time and uh, inexperienced and I thought it was just a matter of you know oh they're going to put a different cover on it you know but it actually took a year and they kept on asking me to rewrite virtually every bit of it for a more Mm. general audience and to put in new things and all that and that was good and it worked but um, I would have needed her I did need her to kind of push me and say this is important yeah I think there's an important lesson in that as well of understanding you know 
there's a lot of the discussion now in, in you know people who do very kind of hardcore medical and scientific yeah. um, research yes. of you know, um, science research communication how they need to understand how to write the the very very detailed piece of work but also how to write the bit that can be understood by a patient let's say or you know the the citizen science yes. communication that needs to be done too so to understand how to take one piece of work and get five bits of communication out of it yeah. so you know you have your one big piece of work yeah. then you're going to write maybe two articles focusing on different aspects. Mm-hmm. One of them is about the methodology, one of them about the findings, you know, knowing how to slice and dice the one piece of mm-hmm. you know, research work that might have taken yeah. a year or two years, whatever, to get as much That's hugely out important, of that. isn't it? Yeah, and mm-hmm. how if you're invited on the radio. Like, usually when you're listening to the radio and there's some scientific breakthrough at a university, they are quite good at putting it across in the terms that... Um, I know, for example, I was listening to the DCU one where somebody has developed heather honey as an alternative to manuka honey and it's much cheaper. Mm. Whatever way that was put across, I got all that and thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, so I think it's important. um, And that people see the connection between science and what we're doing and the real live world because a lot of money is going into it. Yeah, I suppose we're back again to the idea of our role as communicators. Yeah, yeah. That librarians are part of that process and you know it helps us to communicate with researchers if we're doing similar work. Yes. You know, if we're also researching and publishing, then it makes us more approachable to other researchers. They understand that they we we know what they're going through. Yeah. Um, So yeah, what do you think needs to to change and happen in in libraries to encourage more staff to to publish on their work or for that to become just as standard because I think now it's sort of seen as an add-on yeah like it's great if you do that um but it's not yeah it's not a necessary part of your job possibly if once people you know have if you like started to do this to look at can time be given for it for example it's now very acceptable for somebody to go to conference and it may mean they're out of the office for three days or two days or whatever mm-hmm. but like people don't usually spend a day writing but like when I think back on my own writing career at the early stages I wasted an awful lot of time and the challenge there is if you give somebody a day at the end of it certainly when I was starting off I would probably have not had anything usable after a day mm. or whatever but people are being given work time like when I give my academic writing workshops oftentimes people raise the issue that they don't get support for academic writing and I do ask the question are, did you all have to take leave to come here today and yeah. nobody has had to mostly so like there is a level of support now in people attending courses but possibly yeah, structured leave that is related to outcomes you know that's people have to um, produce something and also writing retreats etc those type mm. of events could help people to get you know together in um, community and I think be very important really um, and to produce work but then it's a matter of yeah uh, seeing the value of that the other thing is sometimes people who are writing don't understand the need to market their own writing particularly in their organisation like for example we give copies of all those to the president um, the books that we've done here and silence would be treason um, and that type of uh, having it at um, 
having yourself visible at a highly strategic uh, mm. level, I feel like. Yeah, even things like having a good relationship with your communication. Even if you are in a big institution, you have yeah. a communications department. Yes, yeah. They're good at things like writing press releases. So yeah. just going ahead and writing a press release for yeah. something, even if you don't think mm. that it necessarily merits one, if you give it to your communications department, they'll they'll know how to yes. you know, spruce it up and make it um, yeah. formatted and whether it's good to send to a radio show or you know they'll yes. know what to do it do with it. Absolutely. So there's usually help there. Yeah, and that's important too. Yeah. Mm. Um, so just uh, drawing probably to a, a conclusion, do you have because you've had such an interesting and diverse library career and you've done a lot of different projects, do you have any great advice for on Library Ireland Week? People coming into the profession, people who are about to transform their lives by becoming librarians? Okay, a few things. Get involved. Get involved with the Library Association. Get out there, meet people. Um, Networking is very important. Don't all of us have coffee with your work colleagues or your friends. Try to meet people from your bigger organisation. Talk to people. Um, Listen, but one thing which I would say too is I have had the privilege of working in quite a number of organisations and on a few different continents, which has been terrific. But um, I would advise people, not everybody's going to be able to do that, but if you are at an early stage in your career, don't specialise too quickly. Like, I liked medical librarianship. I could have come back to Ireland and said, I want to work in a medical librarianship role. But I went for loads of other things. Then I realised I love business as well. And later on, Mm. I did education, science. Um, So try to keep um, very open in the early years and get a broad range of experience. And then if you have to stay in the one place... um, try to have different roles within that. For example, in DCU, I was there for 14 years. I spent two of them in Sierra Leone. But when I was there, I did a few sideways moves. I mean, the last four years I've been promoted. But the rest of the time, in order to keep myself um, involved and enthusiastic, I often took on roles like on the web. I did the first library website Mm. Um, and that was good learning about new things so always try to be learning and if you're in an organisation that funds um, CPD or doing degrees if you're in a university or whatever look at those possibilities it won't always be possible you know circumstances mightn't allow it but you can return to learning um, at any stage in your life as I say I did a certificate a couple of years ago and um, I hope even after 40 years that I might do a few more certificates or whatever. Yeah, well, you're never done learning. Yeah, that's it. And that's one good thing about the job. Yeah, and it's such an exciting learning environment. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Helen, thank you so much um, for uh, talking to me and enjoy the rest of Library Ireland Week. Thank you very much and thanks for all the work you put into this, Laura. It's great that you're actually archiving and your colleagues too so hopefully when people listen to them in the future yeah. it'll be interesting we have things to say as like yes, sometimes do, yeah. unexpected things to say um, yeah. so thank you so much for thank sharing you. your story with me Oh, 
Thanks to Helen for sharing her story with me and to Maynooth University Library for the lovely surroundings. Um, because I'm way too silly to be deterred on the live recording plan, I'll definitely be taking another pass at the audience recording. So if anyone has any ideas in that direction, um, hit me up on at AS Libraries on Twitter and I might take you up on them. Um, you can also keep an eye on at AS Libraries Twitter for the imminent release of booking for ASL 2019, which takes place on March 29th. Uh, and I promise it will be a Brexit free zone, uh, looking instead at the question of libraries as space, place or state of mind. So that's all until next time. Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Rooney Ferris. Music and editing are by Michael Ferris.